Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, please open your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 12 as we continue our series here in the gospel according to Mark. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to read the first 12 verses here. Just a reminder from this passage, this is the last week of Christ's life that we're in, in this section of the gospel. Uh, Palm Sunday happened two days ago in the, t- in the text, in, in chapter 11, and we talked about last week Jesus confronting his enemies. He cursed the fig tree, remember that? And then the next day he talked about the fig tree, that leafy tree that had no fruit. And now this is still Tuesday, and he's still at the temple courts. They asked him, what authority do you have to, to do these things in the temple? Jesus answered their question with a question, and the conversation continues. We're just picking up in the middle of the conversation here in Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Hear then the word of the living God. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a slave to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard and or from the farmers. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another slave to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, and they beat some, and they killed some. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Because they knew he had said this parable against them, they were looking for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Father, thank you for your word. Such a vivid picture here of what it means to reject you, what it means to receive you, and what it means to build our lives on Jesus. We pray that you would give us understanding of your word and Faith, trust to believe your word and live it out in our lives. We pray for eyes to be opened to the marvelous, wonderful, spectacular works that you have done and are doing. We pray that we would receive your word, that we would repent from sin, 
And that we would stare at your wonders, receiving your correction humbly. This can only come about by your Holy Spirit's power according to your word. And so, help us to abide in Jesus. And may his words and life abide in us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the story here is simple and straightforward. I will retell what I just read to you. So Jesus tells this story about an owner who builds a vineyard. He builds this vineyard. He builds a fence around it to protect it from those outside. He builds a a watchtower to guard the vineyard. And then he rents it out and goes to a faraway land. Now, when you rent something out, you expect to be paid rent. Right? If you lease it out, you expect something back. And in that day, we didn't have fiat money like we do today, paper money that has arbitrary value placed on it. But you had fruits and vegetables and livestock, and that was the cash of the day. So he rents it out to some farmers. Then came time to pay rent. So he sends some servants to collect the rent. These servants are, it says in verse 2... They were beaten up. The servant was beaten up and sent away empty-handed. You don't get any rent, no fruit for you, no vegetables for you, just a beating. So they beat him up, send him away. Goes back to the owner. Owner a little frustrated, sends another servant. Again, he sent another servant to them and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Jesus does not go into detail of what it meant to treat them shamefully. We don't know. Let me just share, you know, from King David's men who were sent. When, when King David sent men to the king of Tyre after the king passed away and the new king was on the throne, King David sent some messengers to, to show his grief and bereavement with them. And that king was told by his advisors, David has sent spies to, to spy out the land. So they treated them shamefully. They shaved half their beard, which was the mark of manhood, one of the marks of manhood in the day. And they cut their cloaks from the waist down. So they had tank tops, so to speak. And that's all (laughs) running back home, pretty much. Treated shamefully. We don't know if that's exactly what happened here, but um, that wouldn't be beyond these wicked tenants to do something as shameful as that. So they hit this new servant on the head, the second servant, treated him shamefully. Verse 5, then he sent another one, and it just gets more extreme. This time they killed the man. They killed the servant. No rent, just death. You want money? You want our our money? No, we're not going to give you our money. We're going to give you death. So they killed the servant. And then it says this very audaciously in verse 5. I mean, you're just kind of amazed. You think the owner would get it, right? And not send anyone anymore. It is getting worse and worse. You don't send anyone anymore. You call the cops, right? You take care of this. What does he do? He sends many others. And what do they do to them? They beat some and they kill some. See a pattern going on here, right? You think that the the owner would get it. And then, even more unbelievingly, amazingly, he sends his son. He thinks, you know what? I know who they'll respect. My son. That's who they'll respect. So he sends his son to collect the rent because that's, that's my son. You don't, you're not going to kill my son. You know my son. So the son comes and what do they say? When they see him, their eyes get big like saucers, right? The heir. 
Now, you might wonder, why would they, why would they go to kill Aaron? Here's, in, in my study of it, and this seems to be the best answer. They thought, maybe the master's dead. Maybe the owner died. And so here's the heir. And if there is no living member of the family to take the land, it is up for sale. And so they see the heir coming, perhaps. Now, we don't have it here in the text. I think that's the best answer, perhaps, is that they thought maybe the dad is dead. If we kill this guy, no family members to take over the vineyard, we get to keep the vineyard. Awesome. And so the son comes, they kill the son. And instead of giving him a proper burial, they just throw his body out like trash. Then Jesus asks the question in verse 9. But before you ask the question, your jaw is supposed to be dropping to the floor at this point because this is just, it's a ridiculous story in many, on many counts. One, the, the audacity and the wickedness and the evil and the rebellious nature of the tenants, the, their ingratitude. But on the other side, the dad, owner, who just kept sending people and then sent his son. So you're kind of just shocked on all kinds of levels as you're hearing the story. And Jesus asked this question at the end to get the point across in verse 9. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What will he do? Here's the answer in verse 9. He will come and destroy the farmers and give the vineyard to others. He will kill them. He will destroy them. Judgment. Justice will be served. Judgment is coming when the owner comes. Now, presumably at this point, he's going to call the cops, right? Or, or call the authorities. And then Jesus ties it in verse 10 to an Old Testament passage, one of the Psalms, Psalm 118. A Psalm that they would have been singing that week, that week because it's Passover. So they're singing these Psalms and Psalm 118 is the last of the Psalms sung during Passover. So everyone knows this Psalm. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from who? From the Lord. And it is wonderful in our eyes. Haven't you read that verse? That's what he's saying to them. Haven't you read that verse? Pharisees, chief priests, scribes, religious leaders. And what was their response? Did they say, oh, wow, this, that's right. The stone was rejected and becomes the cornerstone. We're not going to reject the stone then. Is that what they said? What did they do in verse 12? They doubled down. What did they do in verse 12? They knew Jesus was talking about them and that they were what in the story? What were the chief priests? They were the tenants, right? They were the evil, wicked tenants. And they knew that Jesus was talking about them, so what did they want to do? They want to arrest him and kill him, right? They wanted to arrest him and they want to kill him. Why didn't they do it in verse 12? The crowd was there. The crowd was too strong. The crowd was all for Jesus. You do that, you're going to get a riot and you'll never get Jesus out of there. You're going to end up dying probably, or getting severely beaten by the crowd. And so they didn't do anything. Okay, that's the story. Now, here's the main idea. This sermon's a little bit different. I did recap the story. I'm going to talk about the main point of the sermon, and then for the last part of it, I'm going to give you three applications, okay, or three ways of thinking about it. So um, it's not quite the same structure that you're used to here. But here's the main idea. Since you have rejected God, receive him now before God finally rejects you. That's the point of this passage. You have rejected God. And since you have rejected God, you need to receive Him now before God finally rejects you on Judgment Day. Now, what did they do? They rejected God, or they rejected the man as the landlord, right? He owns the, he owns the vineyard, but they're not going to pay their rent. 
Not only do they reject him as landlord, they reject him as commissioner. Because he commissioned these messengers, these servants, with a message, pay up. They rejected the message, they rejected the messengers, they rejected the one who was sending the message, the commissioner. And then they rejected the son, which means they rejected him as father. They rejected him as landlord, they rejected him as authoritative commissioner who has the message, and they rejected him as father. And you know that the father in this story is who? God the father, right? So they reject God as landlord, they reject God's messengers and God's words, and they reject God's son. Here's the interesting thing about this passage. Religion. Even a religion that says they believe in the Bible, these chief priests believe in the Bible, the the Pharisees believed in the Bible, religion that would claim to believe the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, as the word of God, was a form of rejecting God. Their religion was an excuse to reject God. Their biblical religion became an excuse to reject God's Son. If you reject God, or if, if you reject your lease, you reject your landlord. If you reject your lease, you reject your landlord. And this is what we need to understand, that God created us. Who owns this earth? God does. Who owns your home? God does. Who owns all of your relationships? God does. Right? He owns everything you have. He is your landlord. And your life is on borrowed time. Your life is on lease. Your relationships are on lease. Your your possessions are on lease. Everything you own is on lease. You own none of it. You're renting. God created us. If you have your own universe that you create and you live on that one, it's all yours. But if you're living in his universe, then it's his ownership and we are obligated to him. All we have, our gifts, our talents, our resources, our time, our relationships, our knowledge, our passions, our desires, our opportunities, they all come from him and they are all to be dedicated to him. And if we reject this obligation, we reject him as the owner. That's the first thing. If you reject your lease, you reject your landlord. Second thing we get from here, again, um, at least in, in just driving home this main point of rejection, is if you reject God's messengers, you reject God, the commissioner. God sent his messengers to speak to Israel. These are the leaders of the nation of Israel. God had sent prophets. Jeremiah was, was you know, you could count, recount Jeremiah being thrown into a cistern and, and left for dead there. Isaiah, sawn in half. You can just go prophet after prophet, rejection after rejection. They were beaten, they were killed, they were shamed, they were arrested. And it wasn't one prophet, it wasn't two prophets, it was several prophets. And they had a Bible that they were quoting and they still rejected that, even though they said they believed in it. God sent messengers and they rejected them. What about us? God has given us a Bible. Do we say we believe the Bible but not actually listen and submit to the words? It's possible. It's possible. God has given us not only His Word, God has given us fellow Christians to speak the truth and love to us. Have you ever been rebuked by a fellow Christian? I hope you have, if you're a Christian. If you haven't, that might be more of a commentary on your life than on theirs. Maybe you're not receptive to rebuke. 
But the point here is God has given you Christians who speak the truth and love to you. He has given you messengers to give you his message. And yet we, say I'm including myself here, we have disobeyed his words, haven't we? Don't we know better than we live? The Ten Commandments, for example. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's talking about worship. Haven't we been guilty of weak worship or even false worship? Now you say, well, PJ, I'm not religious. Okay, you don't have to be religious to have false worship. Everyone worships. Here's what worship is. And here's what sin is. Building your life identity on something other than Jesus. Have you done that? Build your identity. Who you are is built on someone or something other than Jesus. It could be your family. It could be my church ministry. It could be your job. It could be your your future goal of retirement. You build your life on anyone other than Jesus. You have had another God besides him. So we're guilty. I'm guilty. Just think about the Sermon on the Mount. Don't commit adultery. If you look at another woman or man with lustful intent, same gender, opposite gender, you look at another person with lustful intent in your heart, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. You heard it said, don't murder. Jesus says, if you've been angry with someone, you have an angry outburst towards someone, you're guilty of murder. What about worry? Jesus says, don't worry. Be anxious for nothing. Matthew 6. He takes care of the birds. Won't he take care of you? And yet we worry. Aren't we guilty of sinning of the sin of worry? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. Are we guilty of seeking other things before God's kingdom and his righteousness? Do not judge lest ye be judged. Matthew 7, 1. It's not saying never correct, but a judgmental spirit where you're self-righteously looking down on others. Aren't we guilty of that? The point here is, when you look at the Pharisees in the story, it's not just them. It's not just these religious people who reject God. We reject God. We who know the Bible have rejected Him in our sins. So if you, if you reject the messengers and the message, the words, you reject the author. And if you reject the Son, which they did, you reject the Father. Anything we do that isn't for God's glory or the glory of Jesus is a rejection of Jesus. He's our Master, He's our Lord. We live for Jesus. And when we don't glorify Jesus, at least in practice, I'm not saying you're not a Christian necessarily, though non-Christians are guilty of this as well as us Christians, when you don't do something for the glory of Jesus, in effect, you are rejecting Jesus. You are rejecting the Son, and when you reject the Son, at least in part, at least at that moment, you're rejecting the Father. And that's why we can include ourselves when we see Jesus crucified on the cross. We can include ourselves in the crowd saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. As the song says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held Him there. We are guilty of rejecting Jesus when we sin. And then we're, and therefore we're, we're guilty of rejecting the Father. So we reject the landlord because we reject the lease. We reject the author and commissioner because we reject his words and messengers. We reject the Father because we have rejected his Son. Again, the main point of the sermon is, since you have rejected God, I hope I've proved that point, since you have rejected God, receive him now before God finally rejects you. This is the scary thing. Religion rejects God when there is no repenting, resting, and rejoicing in Jesus. 
Not, don't just think about other religions. Buddhism, Islam, though they claim to believe the Bible. Hinduism. I'm not just talking about those religions. I'm even talking about Christian religions who say they believe in Jesus, who say they believe the Bible. Religion, even biblically and doctrinally correct religion, rejects God when there is no actual and practical repenting, resting, and rejoicing in Jesus. So, here's the question I'm going to spend the rest of our time on, answering it three ways. How will we now receive God after realizing our guilt? Okay, that's the question for the rest of our time here, for the last 15 minutes, Lord willing. How will we receive Jesus now after realizing our guilt? Three ways. Three overlapping and corresponding ways. And this is from verses 10 through 12 right here in the text, okay? So verses 10 through 12, we have three ways to receive God now. Look at chapter 12, verse 10. Just, I'm going to take the first half of verse 10. Haven't you read this in Scripture? So here's the whole point. These people have rejected the landlord, they've rejected the commissioner, they've rejected the father, and then Jesus says, haven't you read this in Scripture? In other words, according to the Bible, God is supposed to be rejected, or God is rejected. You have rejected Him. So what does this mean for us? This means for us that Scripture is saying, guess what, everyone sitting here, whether Christian or non-Christian, you are a sinner. Haven't you read, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is no one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. Haven't you read in the Bible that you're a sinner? So here's the first way to receive the Lord is to respond in repentance to Scripture's call. Scripture, you have to respond in repentance to Scripture's call. That's, that's the first way you're going to receive God. And stop rejecting him. Respond in repentance to Scripture's call. And Scripture's first calling you a sinner. The Bible said that they would reject Jesus. That they would reject the stone. That the builders would reject the stone. And the Bible says for us that we are sinners by nature and by choice. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, says this. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority... Over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. Do you understand that you're a sinner? Do you understand you're a sinner because of your choices? Because of your desires? Because of your thoughts? Because of your actions? Every day? Do you understand that it's not just by your choice, but it's also by your nature? That you're a sinner? So you get, if you're going to respond in repentance to the scriptural call, first you've got to admit it, right? If you don't admit you're a sinner, there's no chance for repentance. But if you admit you're a sinner, then what? You repent. Now if you say, well, okay, the Bible says I'm a sinner, so I'm... There's two wrong ways to respond to the Bible teaching that you're a sinner. The wrong way to respond, number one, is to deny it. I'm not a sinner. That's the wrong way of responding. The second wrong way of responding is fatalism. Well, the Bible says it. I guess I have no choice. You said by nature, PJ. So therefore, I have no choice. I'm just going to keep on sinning. It's not my fault anyways. This is God's universe, you said, after all. And you said God is in control of everything. And He is. So, it's not my fault that I'm a sinner. That's a wrong way of responding. 
It's what we'd call fatalism. It's just fate, so I'm not responsible. Wrong. Scripture calls us to, it calls us out of denial. Denial that we're sinners. It also calls us out of fatalism and excuse making. And it calls us into a relationship with God through repentance from sin and trust in Jesus. Just as we were born into sin and commit sins, or just because we are born into sin and commit sins, doesn't mean we are not responsible anymore. We are still responsible for our sins. Not only that, just because everyone is sinning doesn't make it normal. This was pressed on me when I was in Kentucky at Together for the Gospel at the conference. One of the preachers said, if everyone was a zombie, that doesn't make being a zombie normal. Right? The walking dead. Just because we sin, sin is unnatural to to the original human design. We were made to be sinless. In the Garden of Eden, we're made in the image of God. Sin is, is unhuman. It's dehumanizing by its nature. And because we do it so often, and I'm not denying that, we get so used to it that it seems normal. And it becomes a small deal to us. It's not a small deal to God. And it ought not to be a small deal to us. Amen. We are born in sins. We commit sins. And just because everyone does it doesn't make it normal. We need to repent from our sins. That's the first thing to do, okay? If you're going to not just get caught up in religion, even biblical religion, but actually have a meaningful communion with God and not reject God, you need to repent for your sins. In general, that's how you convert to become a Christian and regularly in your life. Repentance is not just for me in 1989, January when I became a Christian. Repentance is an everyday issue for me. And it's an everyday issue for anyone who will receive God. And if you don't, you will build a biblical religion, which is a house of cards before God. That's number one. Repent. Number two. Verses 10 through 11. I'll read it. Verse 10 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord, and it is wonderful in our eyes. So here's what we need to do. What was it in their eyes? It was what? Wonderful. It was marvelous in their eyes. It was wonderful in their eyes. So here's what we need to do if we're going to receive and not reject God. We need to review and appreciate the wonder of what God has done in Christ. Amen. It can't get old to you. It can't get old to you. It can't get too familiar that there is no more wonder. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful, marvelous in our, in our sight. As I was studying this again yesterday, I thought we should have sang, How marvelous. How wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. That's what this text is about. It's not just the wonder of of converting when you first became a Christian. It's the wonder of seeing the work of God regularly. But to see that, we need to start in the beginning of this, where it says, the stone that the builders did what? The stone that the builders rejected. They rejected the stone, and the stone became the cornerstone. Everyone knew, or not everyone, many Jews knew in that day, Psalm 118, they were singing it, that the stone here was the Messiah. He was, it was a symbol for the Messiah. The Messiah, the, the stone in Psalm 118 stood for the Messiah. And this Messiah would be, at least in this verse, rejected, but the Messiah would become the cornerstone of Israel. Not because he would never get rejected, but because after he would get rejected, he would be vindicated in becoming not a throwaway stone, but the what kind of stone? The cornerstone. So first the throwaway stone rejected, but that rejected throwaway stone becomes the cornerstone. 
And so they saw that as the divine vindication of God's rightful ruler, as the true Messiah and ruler of Israel. That's what they should have seen when they read these verses. Now, Jesus predicted that he would be rejected, didn't he? How many times did he do it? Do you remember in the Gospel according to Mark? Three times at least? Three times he predicted to his disciples, the Son of Man will be rejected, betrayed, given over to the leaders and rulers. He will be beaten, shamed, killed, and on the third day he will rise. Three times the Lord predicted that. Jesus knew he was going to be rejected. He knew that the stone would be rejected. Isaiah predicted it. We read that. John read it for us in Isaiah 52 to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was despised and rejected by men. David was rejected for a long time. He was on the run. He was already anointed king, had the Holy Spirit living in him, and he's on the run for years. Rejected as the Messiah, as the, as the lowercase Messiah there, the king of Israel. Jesus on the cross was rejected by the leaders, by the world, and even, get this, he was rejected by God. We just read that in Isaiah 53.10. It was the, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Isaiah 53.6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was punished for our iniquities, for our sins. God rejected Jesus on the cross. For our sins. But even in this rejection, this is how this rejected stone would become the what? The cornerstone or the capstone. The way he would become the cornerstone was by being rejected first. It wasn't an accident that he got rejected. It was design. It was God's design. It was God's plan. The way the stone, the way the throwaway stone becomes the cornerstone that everyone honors is by rejection. Open your Bible or turn your Bible. Keep your finger in Mark. Go to John chapter 12. I want to go to two verses, John 12 and Philippians 2. And here's why. I want you to see that rejection is tied to honoring. Rejection is tied to restoration. Or you could say rejection is tied to vindication. John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24 says this. Jesus says in John 12, 23, Jesus replied to them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I assure you, unless a grain of the wheat falls to the ground and does what? And dies... It remains by itself. If it doesn't die, it remains by itself. But if it dies, it produces what? A large crop, fruit. No fruit without death. No cornerstone without being the rejected stone. The way Jesus will bear fruit, the Son of Man was going to be glorified, is by dying on a cross. No crown without a cross. He had to die. And that's how he would become exalted. One more passage. John, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, you're familiar with it. Philippians 2, 5 says that, Have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by becoming, by assuming the form of a slave and being found in the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, listen to verse 8 now, if you're there now. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, God highly exalted him. It doesn't say God highly exalted him. There's another word before that in verse 9. What are the first words of verse 9? Therefore. Don't skip over that word. Why was he exalted? 
Because he died. Why was he made the cornerstone? Because he was the rejected stone. This is design, not accident. This is the way God exalts his son. Consequently, this is the way you exalt God's son in your life. Take up your cross and follow him and die to yourself. And that's how you bear fruit in your own life. Not by insisting on your own way, but by laying down your way for the glory of God. But that's a side point. I don't want to preach another sermon right now. I'm almost out of time as it is. The point here is that you need to look at the rejected stone and wonder that the throwaway stone and in the action of being thrown away is the very way he would be exalted. How wonderful. You can't outsmart God. Satan couldn't outsmart God. We can't outsmart God. He's the cornerstone and as the cornerstone, we build our lives on him. For homework, I will have you read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Don't go there now. Write that down if you have a paper. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. I will just read one passage of application here on the cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. It says this. Listen to Ephesians 2. So then you, Christians, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. You're the building built on who? Christ, the cornerstone. The whole building, that's us. The sanctuary is not this building. That's why I use the word auditorium, not sanctuary. We are the holy place, not this building. The whole building, the people, verse 21 being put together by Him, grows into a holy sanctuary. We grow into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together by God's dwelling in the Holy Spirit. So, First Southern Baptist Church family, what does this mean for us? If Christ is the cornerstone, if we're going to stand in wonder of Jesus the cornerstone, this means that we as a church build our church on Jesus. We build each other up. We speak the truth in love to each other. We correct each other, we rebuke each other, we teach each other, we restore each other, we train each other, we love each other in the power of the Holy Spirit, according to the Word of God, and that is how a church is built on Jesus. You can build a church on someone else and on something else. And that's what unhealthy or false churches are. They look like they're built on Jesus, but they're not. To be built on Jesus as a church and to build your life on Christ means that you stand and marvel at the cross of Christ. And, and in marveling at Christ, you let the Holy Spirit take that gospel and infuse you with power to have gospel love towards one another. And in that, we build each other up. And God's doing it here. Don't you see it? Amen. Do you see it? I see it. God is working. God did it. God did this cross. It was His design. That's what it says in going back to verse 11. This came from the Lord. This is God's design. The cross was not an accident. It was designed. It was destined. It was prophesied. And it's marvelous. Now, why is it marvelous? I need to take five more minutes for this. I'm trying to end a little bit earlier because of the communion. But I need to take five minutes on this. Why is it marvelous? It's marvelous because God makes the foolishness of this world or the wisdom of this world foolishness. And he takes the strength of this world and calls it weakness. And he tells us, in this 1 Corinthians 1, 
I'm not turning there for the sake of time. Just read the last five or six verses of 1 Corinthians 1. God chooses the weak things of this world and the despised things of this world and the foolish things of this world to shame the strong, to shame the wise. Why? So that we wouldn't boast in ourselves, but we would boast in who? In Christ, in the Lord. That's why this is His design. The cross has to be central in our lives if we are going to have a biblical religion. And it says it is wonderful in our what? In our eyes. Is the cross wonderful to you? Is the cross wonderful to everyone? No, it's not, right? Not to everyone. Is it wonderful to you? If it is wonderful to you, and I pray it is, why is it wonderful to you? Is it because you're smarter than others? Is it because you're wiser than others? You got a little bit more of the God spirit in you? Is it because you're better than others and that's why it's wonderful in your eyes and not in theirs? That's not why. You know why you see it as wonderful? I'll tell you why. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's why they can't see it. Why can you see? If it is marvelous to you, why is it marvelous to your eyes? I'll tell you why. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. You know why you see the glory of Christ? You know why it's marvelous in your eyes? Because just like God said in Genesis 1, let there be light and there was light. You know what God said in your heart? Let there be light. And that's why it's marvelous in your eyes. And so if it is marvelous in your eyes, that is not license to look down on others. It's a license for gratitude and worship. God, I was blind. I couldn't see this marvelous. I would have, I would have kept him thrown away. I would have thrown more trash on that stone. But no, it is the cornerstone and it is wonderful in my eyes. Because you have said, let light shine out of darkness. And you opened my eyes. Who gets all the glory? God does. Not us. So if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to understand. If you're not a Christian, thank you for coming today. It could be a little strange to sit in a room of Christians. Think about Christian things. So I want to thank you for being here. I want to tell you the main message of the Bible in 30 seconds. Here's the main message of the Bible. God made you. He owns you. He made you in His image to enjoy Him. Yet we as humans have not enjoyed Him. We have rebelled against Him. We have chosen instead of enjoying Him, we wanted to use Him to enjoy other things more than Him. And that's what the Bible calls sin and rebellion. And the penalty of sin is death. But God sent His Son. Here's the good news. God sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins, to rise from the dead, to do all the works we should have done, to pay for all the sins we committed, and to rise from the dead, for everyone, so that if anyone turns from their sin and trusts in Jesus and turns from their religion, I got to say that clearly. Christianity is not primarily about religion. You have to repent from your religion, even your biblical religion, and trust only in Christ. You can be saved. If you're looking to your own goodness, to that degree, you're not looking to Christ. Trust in Jesus today if you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, I would say pray for eyes to see. Only God can give us sight. Whatever you see, keep staring at it. This means, non-Christian friend, keep asking questions and keep continuing to seek Jesus out with whatever degree of desire you have because no man seeks for God unless God 
is working. And if you have any desire for God, guess what? That's God's gift to you, but it's not guaranteed to you. You could have a desire for God today, a little bit of desire, that goes away for the rest of your 50 years, and you could die in that. And it wouldn't be God's fault, it would be yours. God is calling you to seek Him, to trust Him, and to turn from sins. If you're a Christian, build your life on Jesus. He's the cornerstone, right? Not your job, not your family, not your spouse, not your money, not your possessions, not your health, not your retirement, not your church. The cornerstone is Jesus, and therefore build your life on Him and not on other things. Don't you want to join the building of God's work on God's cornerstone rather than wasting your life trying to take what isn't yours for the purposes that will leave you empty? And if you do that, and if you build your life on Christ, I'm going to warn you here, Christian, if you build your life on Christ, you will get similar rejection from religious and strongly secular people. You will. Jesus did. If the world hated me, the world will what? Also hate you. And not just non-Christians or people who are rejecting Jesus outrightly. Religious people are the ones who hated Jesus the most. People who believe the Bible and their religion hated Jesus the most. Ironically. Okay, lastly. Third, and this is quick. Okay, so number one was uh, respond in repentance. Number two, review and appreciate the Lord's work. Lastly, receive rebuke with humility. Look at verse 12. What was their response? They knew Jesus was talking about them. And did they say, thank you, Jesus. I knew I was rejecting God. I knew something was missing in my life. I knew I had a big problem. Thank you for telling me about my sin. How do I receive God? Is that what, the way they responded? How did they respond? They doubled down, right? Let's kill this guy. Why? Because he's pointing out my sin. So what do we need to do? Receive rebuke with humility. Jesus telling them they're going to reject him and they still didn't get it. That's how hard their hearts were. The Messiah right in front of them, telling them very powerfully the word of God. They knew that he was talking about them and they still rejected it. Wow, how hard our hearts can be. So we need to receive rebuke with humility. Christian friend, Christian brother or sister, when God's word convicts you through other people, don't make excuses. Make a full speed run to the cross. When a Christian brother or sister confronts you. I'm going to talk to us as a church family now. Let's build up a healthy church here. What do we need to do? We need to cultivate and welcome a culture of receiving and giving godly criticism. I am not against criticism. The church that's against criticism is on its way to dying. Unless the church is already perfect and doesn't need anything to be criticized. Right? You need criticism in a church. But you don't need godless criticism in a church. You need godly criticism in a church. And you need to receive godly criticism in a church. And you need to give godly criticism in a church. To me as the pastor, to us as a church family in our business meetings, to one another in our own lives. We're not perfect. We sin against God and we want to change. So let's build a culture here. Let's cultivate a culture of receiving and giving godly criticism. And let's reject and turn a deaf ear to godless criticism. That fuels poison in the church. If you're not a Christian, one last question. When was the last time God corrected you? Maybe it's today. And the question is, will you receive rebuke and correction from God? Or will you use this rebuke as fuel to continue rejecting Jesus today?
Let us as a church family look in the mirror, not look at others, not even others in our church family. Let us look in the mirror at ourselves and make sure we are not rejecting Jesus through our biblical and correctly doctrinal religion. Let's look in the mirror and ask God to help us to give us repentance from our sins, a reviewing of the marvelous work of God, and a receiving of biblical rebuke as we read and hear God's word. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this parable. It's pointy. It's sharp. It's uncomfortable. But it's life-giving. Because you are good. You, Father, sent your Son in your great love to die for sinners and rise from the dead. Thank you. We ask, God, that you would give our church continually the gift of repentance. Give us eyes that marvel at the glory of God, your glory, Father, in the face of Jesus Christ. Let there be light again and again and again, an increasing light in our lives. That the world, that the 80,000 residents of Bellflower and the surrounding region and the 10 million Angelinos in Los Angeles County would hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And may we receive rebuke and correction here in this church. Give us humility, love, courage to confront each other in truth and love. All of these things can only come about by your spirit. And so we pray for his help. In Jesus' name, amen.